uh, but we're just going to walk right through them. I really feel like this is an important section of Scripture. But let me catch you up real quick, as fast as possible anyway. Uh, we're, like I said, we're in our Address the Mess series, which is over First and Second Corinthians. Uh, and First and Second Corinthians were letters that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth that he had established. Um, now, he spent like, he had established that church like four or five years before he wrote these letters. Uh, and when he established it, he spent 14 or 15 months with them, just training them and teaching them how to lead and uh, how to do ministry, basically. And then he left after he felt like they were pretty well trained. But despite all that, the Corinthians started falling away from what they had learned. Uh, and they started, they kind of lost their way. Because they became worldly. And by worldly, I mean they became immature. Uh, they were in sexually immoral and immoral. Uh, they were self-righteous and they were religious. So Paul wrote them to both, you know, discipline them and restore their leaders to godliness. Now, today Paul's going to confront the, uh, the Corinthians about the consequences of not living their faith, or the consequences of living willfully in sin and rejection of God. Now, it's important to note, this is going to be really important, that this, this is written to believers. He's talking to believers. That's really, really important. Uh, so you can set the context for interpreting this text. It's really important. Uh, these verses that we're going to break down, a lot of people either misrepresent them or just misunderstand them, uh, but we're going to make sure we get that cleared up. The reason verses 9 through 20 uh, are often misunderstood is because they teach something called reversionism. Reversionism, that's why I titled the message Reversionist History, uh, because uh, reversionism is something that's very real in the church today. And let me define that for you. Reversionism is the process of relapsing into previous patterns of sinful behavior. Okay, so falling back into the sin, sinful lives you used to live. That's reversionism. Uh, and there's uh, a, a term you guys might be more familiar with. Have you ever heard someone use the term backsliding? You ever hear that term? Okay. Kind of the same idea. Okay. It, it, it back, we call it backsliding more in our day, which brings a lot of more questions into, into context that we'll deal with here in just a little bit. Uh, but reversionism is at the core of one of the most heated debates in all of Christendom. I mean, one of the most heated. Because most believers think that if someone falls back into a pattern of their own sinful behavior, of their old sinful behavior, uh, that they do so for one of two reasons. Okay, and the first reason is some some people will say that if you turn back to your old behaviors, you have lost your salvation. The other camp a lot of times says that when they fall back into their old behaviors, their old sinful behaviors, that they prove they never were saved in the first place. Now, thank goodness, both of those are wrong. And they're not only wrong, they're not biblical. And we'll look at that here in a minute. So today, Paul's going to really explain to them what really happens when they get caught in the So Let's jump right in. Okay, as quick as I can catch you up. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, uh, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you that you were washed, you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Okay, for the first six chapters, Paul describes all the sins that the Corinthians had been reverting to. And there were a ton of them, if you think back. They had become judgmental and unrighteously judgmental. Okay? Uh, they had become sexually immoral. Uh, they had become very, very self-righteous, which is ironic because they weren't living righteous lives. Uh, and they became really litigious. They loved taking people to court. Now, someone in the Corinthian church was even having an affair with their stepmom. <laughs> That's nasty. I'm not going to give that any more thoughts. Anyway, so Paul was reminding them of the consequences of reverting back to those lifestyles. 
Okay, now notice there's a wide variety of sins that he starts to mention here that will not inherit the kingdom. But this isn't about those sins. That's not what this text is about. Uh, it's, it's not even really going to address those individually in this. Uh, he wasn't trying to elevate those saying these are the worst sins because they're not. Uh, but Paul was just saying people who fall back into those lifestyles make themselves uh, in a position where they can't inherit the kingdom. They inherit the kingdom. And by kingdom, they're in danger of not inheriting. Uh, when he says that they're in danger of not inheriting the kingdom, the kingdom he's talking about is not heaven. And I'll explain that more as we move on. Uh, if this is talking about heaven, we're all doomed. None of us are going to make it. Not one person will make it. This is talking about heaven. But we'll look at that more as we move on. Now, I know a lot of self-righteous people who use these verses to judge people. And I can't tell you how many times that they know someone who's struggling with one of these things, and they say, oh, they're not a believer, or they say, look at you know, look what happened. They, they were phonies or whatever. And they, they take these back to this verse, and they totally miss what it's trying to teach, right? Because there's a lot of flaws in that theory because they read through this list really quickly. And they don't understand what all these sins actually mean. And if they did, I doubt they'd say what they're saying. Right? There's one of these sins especially that we commit probably daily. So if you take a closer look at the sins that Paul mentioned, uh, one is really, really familiar. Okay? The word reviler. Okay? The word reviler. In the Greek, it's loiteros. And it means slander or gossip. Okay? Now listen to this. Those people that say that... The People who commit the sins he was talking about will not go to heaven. People who believe that he's actually talking about heaven here. You've got a problem. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, everyone in here has gossip. I guarantee you, everyone in here will again gossip at some time, right? I mean, not Kevin, but everybody other than Kevin will gossip at one time or another. So if you believe that this is talking about heaven and hell, then that sweet old lady you know that's been going to church her whole life and seems to do everything right but can't shut her mouth is she's going to be going to hell. See, that's not what this is talking about. It's not what it's talking about, right? Does anybody here dare to say that they never gossip? I don't think anybody would take that route, would they? So when people take a hard stance on this, now this is, those behaviors will not go to heaven. That's what the kingdom is there. Well, if that's the case, we're all doomed because I can't think of one person who doesn't do this. Sometimes we hide it. We try to disguise it. Like, I heard somebody one time say that, that um, prayer requests were actually gossip requests. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he said they were in this Bible study, and they would always stand up and say, I want prayer for somebody. And then they would gossip about everything going wrong in their life at that moment. And you know, according to that definition, if this were if this were talking about heaven and hell, they'd be doomed. Okay? But that's not what it's talking about. And I'll look closer at that later. I don't want to jump into too much of that right now. But there are two reasons Paul listed uh, those lifestyles as unable to inherit the kingdom. There's two reasons. Okay, first, he mentioned those lifestyles because some of his readers were living those lifestyles. And that's not too hard to believe when you realize that's all chapter 1 through 5 has been. Is Paul saying all the things that they have gotten into and all the things they've fallen back into. That's what those first five chapters were completely about was, I can't believe you're doing such and such. For five chapters, that's all we've heard. He's been scolding them for living the very lifestyles that the people in the world around them were living. And these were very ungodly uh, lifestyles. Uh, now, the second thing, they even trusted people who lived those lifestyles to sit in judgment over their civil matters rather than take it to the, rather than take it to the church. So those two styles of behavior proved that they were not going to inherit the kingdom, and we'll explain that as we move on. So basically, they had slowly started assimilating into the world around them. So let's take a closer look at verse 9 in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, just the first part. 
says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, that's underscored, remember that, will not inherit, underscore that too, the kingdom of God. So the two important words in verse 9, the very first part, are unrighteousness and, or unrighteous and inherit. Those are the two important words here. Okay, now the Greek word for unrighteous is a dikos, and it means to uh, a violator of the law. It means someone who is unjust or violates the law. That's what that means. Okay, now the Greek word for inherit, this is a tough one, it's kleronomeo, and it means to receive something from a deceased parent or loved one or to receive something passed down, like an heirloom. Okay, that's what that means, all right, in the Greek. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it teach that salvation is an inheritance. There's not one place in Scripture that says you inherit. It's like it's not like if two German shepherds have a pup, it's going to be a German shepherd. That's not how it works. So we're both Christians, so we're just going to pass that down to our kids. That's not how that works. Okay, there's nowhere in Scripture where it says it's an inheritance. God's grace isn't a possession, you know, that, that someone can purchase and make into a family heirloom. That's not what he's trying to say. As we know, salvation is a gift from God. It's a gift given to all who trust Jesus Christ through eternal life. Let's look at John 6.40. I love this verse because it kind of simplifies it. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now the word behold in the Greek is phaeroneo, and it means understand. It means understand, or it's a perceive. So what this verse is saying, Jesus is saying, all those who understand who I am, who Jesus is, and believe in that, will have eternal life. It's a gift. Okay, it's just a gift. You can't inherit it. To suggest that salvation is an inheritance is to say salvation is by works. And the scriptures time and time again tell us that it's not a work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which I find a way to sneak in every chance I get. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what Paul was saying here, let me break this down into layman terms. If I were going to interpret this, it would be those who violate or reject God's word or instructions will lose the opportunity to inherit something from a loved one who dies. In this case, Jesus is the loved one who dies. And the inheritance that he's talking about here is the messianic peace. Okay? So what was the word, I mean, what was the inheritance they stood to lose? The millennial kingdom. That's what they stood to lose. And by, by lose, I mean they wouldn't be able to serve in that kingdom because all believers will serve in that kingdom. Now, when you're interpreting Scripture, there's, or will enter that kingdom, rather. When you're interpreting Scripture, especially when it comes to something like this, it's important to understand when it's talking about heaven and hell, it will say, if, if it says they will not see the kingdom, all believers will enter the kingdom. Not all of them will serve in it, but all will enter it. So if it says they will not see the kingdom, it's talking about heaven and hell. If it says, uh, if they will not uh, enter the kingdom, some Bibles say enter, but if it uses that phrase, it's talking about heaven and hell. But never will it use the word inherit in relation to heaven and hell. That's always going to be talking about inheriting the kingdom or being able to serve in the kingdom. Now, Paul discussed this in 2 Timothy. I bring this up quite a bit because I think this is one of the most powerful statements about it. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11, that it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also what? Live with him. That's talking about salvation. This is saying if we die with him, we also live with him. That's talking about being saved. Then it says, verse 12, if we endure with him, we will also what? Reign with him. That's talking about in the millennial kingdom. It says if we deny him, he will also deny us. Deny us what? The ability to reign in the kingdom. And this is what ties it up. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's one of the most powerful small sections of Scripture to explain the kingdom. Because basically he's saying, listen, if you've died with him, you've been raised with him. Meaning you've trusted him, you've died with Christ. The moment you believe in Jesus, it says the old man is put away and the new man is born. That's what it's talking about, the born-again experience. And he's saying, but those who are faithful get to reign in the kingdom. And if they're not faithful, they could lose that. But he's not going to reject them because he can't deny himself. Meaning the Holy Spirit lives in everyone who believes. When we get to heaven, if he were to reject us, he'd be rejecting the truth of himself. So I love what that's teaching. If I'm going too fast, let me know. I've got a lot to cover. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I know it rubs a lot of believers wrong for me to say that a believer can sin like this. You wouldn't believe how many times I've had people pull me aside and say, I can't believe that you are preaching that believers would sin like that. I just don't understand how you can even say those words without feeling like a hypocrite, knowing the things we have in our hearts and our minds. I don't understand that. Because, listen, believers are capable of anything that an unbeliever is capable of. The difference is we are covered by the grace of God. Right? In Second Peter, he even said that there are those believers who have forgotten they were once purged of their old sins. Listen to this, Second Peter 1.9. For he who lacks these qualities... Uh, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So you can get so far away from God that you can forget your identity in Christ. And I've dealt with people in that situation. I've dealt with people who were believers and were serious about their faith and something happened in their early 20s, so they abandoned the whole thing and you see them in their 60s, now they're wanting to talk about God again because something they found out they have cancer or something. I've seen this happen time and time again. Okay, believers can do anything unbelievers can do. The difference is, as believers, we don't get away with it. Okay, as believers, when we do something we're not supposed to do, and we can do anything, but when we do that, God isn't going to overlook it. When we do something like that, we fall under God's judgment. I don't know, if it, I know me personally, I call it the spiritual woodshed. I've been put there many times. Anybody else? Can you admit that you've been there? Four of us, the rest are sinless. We, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing, is that God disciplines His own. He disciplines us in this life, uh, in the future, and in the life to come. He can discipline our health, our finances, any way He wants to, to get us back in line. Believers don't get away with that sin, but they can commit any sin that an unbeliever can. Listen, if we were capable of becoming sinless, would we have really needed Jesus? We wouldn't have needed Him. He died because we could not be sinless. Okay, now let's move on to verse 12. It says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are what? Profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will be mastered, uh, by, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the Corinthians had a slogan. Okay, for, uh, really they had a slogan for about everything, and it was a pretty tore up slogan almost every time they took a good concept and destroyed it. The slogan they used to have was, all things are lawful for me. And the reason they used that is they took advantage of the fact that they were taught they were free from the law. Since they were freed from the law, they felt like that meant they were free to do anything they wanted to do. So when somebody would question them about their immoralities or sexual immoralities, they'd say that slogan over and over again. All things are lawful to me. That was literally their defense for living contrary to God. Well, they're not under the law anymore. You're still under you're still under God's, you know, control. He still has rules. But that was their slogan. So Paul kind of used that slogan against them and explained that their freedom did have limits. See, if their liberty was an offense to someone or if it was immoral in any way, if they were using their liberty to be immoral or offensive, 
It wouldn't profit them. And what he meant by it wouldn't profit them is God can't bless them. If they use their liberties incorrectly, God can't bless them. And then he said, the more you surrender to it, basically, you become a slave to it. He said not to let anything master you. When you allow a sin to take over your life, it becomes your master, and you serve that sin. It's just true. And the more you get enslaved to your sin, the farther away from God you drift until you can end up being the person that Peter talked about that has forgotten their once purged their old sin. Now, one of the most common sins they used their liberty to justify was their sexual immorality. Now, I don't know if I can if I can make you understand how bad Corinth was when it comes to sexual immorality. It was bad. I mean bad. They were under you know, they were in, you know, imitating what they'd seen from Roman and Greek rule and it was bad. They were very, very sexually immoral. Alright, now look at this. First Corinthians six thirteen. Here's another slogan. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for what? Immorality. That word in the Greek is porneia, which is where we get our word pornography from. It's the Greek word porneia, and it means sexual immorality. Why translators didn't go ahead and translate the rest of the way out, I have no idea, because almost every time that word's used, it means uh, sexual immorality. It says, uh, yet the body is not for immorality or sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not raised the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. So this is another slogan, and you're not going to believe how they misuse this slogan. This is unbelievable. Their slogan was, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Now, it it sounds harmless to us if we don't understand the context of this. But this is about sexual immorality, believe it or not. What they were saying is when someone's hungry, it's a natural impulse to eat. Okay, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food. And they likened that to when someone has a sexual desire, since it's natural, right, then it's natural for them to fulfill it however they'd like. So when they say food for the stomach, the stomach for food, it was their way of saying we eat because it's a natural impulse. We're sexually immoral because we're sexual beings. Now, has anybody ever heard that statement? People say we're sexual beings and we're just, you know, we're like the animals. Anybody ever hear that? Yeah. That's another sermon. Trust me, I'm dying to speak on that one. But this is this is their slogan. you got to eat to live. We're sexual creatures, so if you have a desire, you should fill that just like you fill your stomach when you're hungry. That's, that's how far they've fallen. But Paul, you know, countered that slogan by reminding them of some important biblical facts. He basically said, food is for your stomach, and your stomach is for food. Right, but both your stomach and the food will perish someday. They're not eternal. But someday, a version of your body will be spiritually resurrected. Your bodies are eternal, not the physical body, but the person that makes up the body is eternal. In one form or another, that's going to be resurrected, which is a whole other message, right? So your body was designed to eternally glorify God. That's why we were given bodies, right? Then he placed a part of himself in those bodies when we believe called the Holy Spirit, which now made us eternal with him, right? So why is all that so important? Because a believer's body was designed for serving God, not serving sexual immorality. That's what Paul was trying to counter him with, all right? Now, Paul explains the seriousness of sexual immorality in, in greater depth here in verses 15 through 17. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Any guesses why he brought that up? 
Yeah, prostitution was rampant. Male and female prostitution was rampant in, in the Corinthians, in, in the city of Corinth. Verse 16, Or do you not know that uh, the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Okay, for he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, so this is kind of interesting because Paul reminded them that since the day they believed, we surrendered ourselves to God. Heart, body, mind, we surrendered ourselves to God. We become God's property because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And when the Holy Spirit indwells us, our bodies become temples. That's why the Bible says that time and time again. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. He said, Do you not know that you are what? A temple of God, and that the Spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Okay? Because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, where you go, he goes. Okay? That's something I think Christians forget. It drives me crazy when Christians treat pastors like the principal. That drives me nuts. And people honestly believe if the church doesn't know, or the pastors doesn't, don't know, or the elders don't know, or the deacons don't know, then I got away with it. But here's what you're forgetting. Wherever you go, you take a piece of God with you. Everything you do, everything you say, God is with you when you do that. And Paul was reminding him of that. And he was saying that when you're sexually immoral, you are bringing God with you to the act of sexual immorality. Talk about a way to ruin that for you, right? When you go, you are taking God with you. If you go to see a prostitute, you are taking the Holy Spirit to see a prostitute. Now, you can't say Paul was not a master guilt tripper because that one had to nail him. You know what I mean? Go ahead. Go to your prostitute. Just know you're taking Jesus with you. That's basically what he was telling him. And then Paul reminded him that sex was designed to bind a man and a woman closer together. Did you recognize that verse where it says that the two should become one flesh? You see it in a lot of wedding ceremonies in Genesis. It's talking about how when a husband and wife consummate their marriage, they become one flesh in the eyes of God. They become one flesh. And that was supposed to be between a man and a woman. It was supposed to make them closer to each other than they are to anyone else. It's that physical bond that's supposed to make you closer to your spouse than your, than your friends and your family. It makes you even closer uh, because that's what that bond was designed for. Now, it was supposed to be the action that draws people together. Now it's the action that's pulling people away from God. That's how the Corinthians were using it. Because here's the thing. When you are sexually immoral, you are binding yourself to that person forever. Even if it's a one-night stand, you have bound yourself to that person in a fashion forever. That's something that cannot be taken back. Now, God did not forbid premarital sex because he's a party pooper. He didn't forbid premarital sex because he's a fun sucker. That's not what it's about. He didn't. He wasn't trying to be mean to us. There's a reason. See, God didn't. Uh, God forbid premarital sex because, you know, he realized that it had humongous emotional, uh, uh, emotional re repercussions in our lives when we're sexually intimate with somebody. And I'll explain that. Right? When when people are sexually immoral before they're married, it causes pain and confusion. And I'll explain that. Again, sex is designed to be a commitment that bonds two people together, a man and woman together. But premarital sex forms feelings of a commitment or a bond that may not exist. And so when people become intimate before they're married, they feel like there's a bond and a commitment between them that has not been made yet. 
Have you ever wondered why somebody who's not married is in a relationship with someone that's just toxic and they stick around forever? A lot of times it's because they've got this, this imaginary bond they form because they're being intimate with somebody who's not their husband or not their wife, and so they feel bound to them, and maybe that's not even the right person for them, but they cheated the system, and now they have this, this, uh, this imaginary bond or, or this imaginary commitment that doesn't exist, and it causes issues. It causes people to stick in, in bad relationships. Okay, and this is really important because they say that when you're involved with someone in premarital, you know, premarital sex, that, that in a way, when you walk away from that person, even if you're in a relationship, it's almost what feels like a divorce almost because you had a bond with them you weren't supposed to have. Does that make sense? You guys with me? And, I mean, I could preach on that forever, but I won't. Now, verses 18 through 20 kind of clarifies a lot of this. First Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. This is kind of his, his uh, solution, if you will. He says, flee immorality. Flee immorality. That's important. If you're following along, underscore that. That every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against what? His own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not what? You are not your own. Remember, God took ownership of you the moment the Holy Spirit inhabited you. Verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. If you would have asked some of the Jews at that time who had converted to Christianity and some and, and were living in Corinth, if you would have said to them, would you be willing to go in and deface the temple? They'd go, are you serious? Who would deface the temple of God? If you were to ask them, would you take a, a, a pagan sacrifice into the temple? Absolutely not. The temple's supposed to be holy. We're supposed to keep it holy. Okay. Would you take unclean meat into the temple? No. Why are you asking me these things? No, I'm telling you, I, I wouldn't do anything to defile the temple. Well, the moment you believe, you become a temple. And what you do to that temple is the same as defiling that literal temple of God that they saw in Jerusalem. That, that's what he's equating you to. This is actually brilliant. So in verse 18, he starts off with flee immorality. Flee immorality or run from, uh, from immorality with urgency. Okay, now, uh, the Greek word for flee is fugo. Fugo, okay, meaning to escape as if running from danger. So flee, in this sense, is run like a bear's chasing you, basically, is what he's saying. Run like that you're, you've fallen into the nature preserve at the zoo and the lions are coming to eat you. Run like that. This is what this is saying. And we get the word fugitive from this word flee in the Greek, from fugo. That's where we get the word fugitive, on the run, right? Now, Paul likely used this word flee because, remember, these people had a great understanding of the Old Testament. They, they had been passed down orally, traditionally. They understood the Old Testament and all its stories. So I think Paul used this word flee to put in their mind how Joseph was fleeing from sexual immorality. Let's look at that real quick. Genesis 39.7. Let me give you a little bit of quick background on him. Joseph was the chosen son. The brothers were jealous that he was the chosen son. And, and to be honest with you, his dad was kind of dumb about it, and he made him a special coat and everything. It, he he made, a, made a target of it. So his brothers said, let's kill him. And one of them says, no, we can't kill him, and his blood will be on our hands. Let's just sell him into slavery, because that's so much better. So they waited till they found some traitors, and they sold him into slavery. 
all right? But see, God had already promised he was going to be a great ruler. That wasn't going to change no matter what man did to him. So when he goes and is sold, he gets sold in the marketplace again to a man named Potiphar, who was a very wealthy man, right, in Egypt. So he is such a good servant that Potiphar is so impressed with him that he elevates him to where he is second in command only under Potiphar himself. So the devil is not going to allow that to happen. So the, the Potiphar's wife, she had the hot spot. She thought he was a looker, right? So she was always trying to trying to get him to uh, crawl into her web, we'll say. So let's jump into this, Genesis 39.7. It says, It came about that after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, uh, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put... Uh, all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? See, he knew, they've always known that, that this, is, this is sinful, this sexual immorality was wrong. Verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her. So think about this. Every day, this cougar is coming after Joseph. Every day. Okay? Now, verse 11. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house of the household was there inside. So it's just him and his boss's wife, master's wife. Verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. Is it just me or, I mean, she's desperate, isn't she? I mean, he keeps saying no. She's grabbing his clothes, trying to pull him in with her. Okay? Desperate. Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and what? And fled and went outside. I think this is why Paul used that word. Everyone knew that story. Right? That story was talking about how righteous Joseph was. Because he refused to sin against God, even though he was sold into slavery, even though he was accused, uh, later this lady will accuse him of something he didn't do, and he was thrown in jail, and he was blessed to leave in jail. No matter what he did, he always did what was right in the eyes of God, and God took every bad situation and made it better. Well, when sexual immorality was knocking at Joseph's door, he fled. When she grabbed his cloak, his cloak or his jacket, he literally said, you can have it, and he ran out of it and left it in there. Okay? That's what fleeing immorality is supposed to look like. Paul wanted that picture in their mind. This is what it means to flee sexual immorality. See, Joseph knew back then sex outside of marriage would violate God's law, especially with a married woman. So before she could tempt him, he just ran. See, a lot of avoiding those types of sexual sins is not allowing yourself to get in a situation where it can happen. That's, that's huge. I have told this to so many young people when they talk to me about these issues, and I say, listen, don't allow yourself to be alone. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're vulnerable. Realize that you're human and play to that. Don't give yourself an opportunity to be tempted. Take yourself away. Listen, if you struggle with alcohol, I wouldn't get a job in a liquor store. You know, it's kind of the same mentality. It's when you see that there's a problem, get away from it. Right? Now, Joseph saw it and he got away from it. Now, Paul says sexual immorality was a sin against our own body. Okay, now, sexual immorality is the act of, use, of using our physical bodies as an instrument of sin against God. That's how a lot of people define it. Using your body as an instrument of sin against God. 
And when you're sexually immoral, you reveal through the actions of your body that in your heart you've surrendered to sin because you're allowing something you know is a sin against God to take you over and you're partaking in it. That's what he was talking about. So the sexually immoral behavior is defiling the temple. He's saying it's a sin against your own body because your body is the temple and you're defiling that temple. Okay, that's huge. But, you know, since the body houses the Holy Spirit, we should make sure that the body honors God. Okay, that's basically the whole message there. Then he reminds them that they were purchased with a great price. With a great price. Now, I wish I could spend a lot more time on this than I have to spend. Because one of the most powerful things that's ever happened to me in my life is when someone sat down and explained to me what the price was for our salvation. Now, we all know he was crucified. But when you walk through the life of Jesus and see all he had to endure, yet remain sinless and innocently be put to death on a cross and murdered for us, when you realize what a great price he paid, it should mean more to you. It should influence you to live your lives differently. And Paul was saying, listen, you were purchased with a great price. And that price was the innocent blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on that cross. That's what you were purchased with. And that innocent blood was full payment for the sin debt of all humanity. Full payment. That's for everyone. But only those who trust Jesus for their eternal life accept that full payment. Right? And those who trust Jesus for their eternal life also have eternal life. So everyone in the world has their sins paid for. The difference is some will accept the payment and some won't. So it's basically like saying that if I put a million dollars in your account and you die penniless because you refuse to take it out, you could have been wealthy. You just chose not to. The same thing. Anyone that wants to go to heaven can. Your sins have been paid for. You just have to accept the payment. Cash the check, basically, is what you have to do. And he was saying, you have been, you have been purchased. You are God's property. He purchased you at a great price, the blood of his only begotten son, and forgave all your sins, past, present, and future. And how do you repay that? By turning against everything that he commands you to do. By turning to the world, the same world that crucified his son, you're turning and taking sides with them. This is what Paul was saying. Like I said, he was a master, master at guilt tripping. He had that down. Right? So after we believe our physical bodies are not only God's property, they're to be used to worship Him. You know worship isn't just singing. Did you know that? It always drives me crazy when people, when the music ends and people say, oh, the worship service. This whole service is a worship service. Because we're, we're, we are showing God how much He means to us in every facet of the service. When you are living your life, a godly life, representing Christ in front of other people, that's a form of worship. Your body is becoming an instrument of worship. When you reject things that you know you're not supposed to do, even if the world makes fun of you for it, you're using your body as an object of worship. Right? And that's what we were designed to do. Because we were purchased with a great price. And Paul's saying, after everything, after everything, after God changed you and made you over new, now you're turning back to that old lifestyle. A lifestyle that you were purged from, you were cleansed of. And you're turning back to it. And you're drawing closer to the people who live those lifestyles. And falling farther and farther away from God. He said, don't you realize that you are making yourself the kind of person that God cannot bless? And especially cannot enter the kingdom, which is the ultimate blessing we receive uh, for, our, for our faithfulness. This is really, really important. So what Paul's saying, it, the, the concepts that he's teaching here, we should apply in every area of our lives. 
And when I'm reading this and I'm studying this, I couldn't help but think about that. Think about it. Everything you do, everybody has those sins in their life. And, and if you want to stand up and share them, you can't. No, I'm just kidding. We'll do that. But everybody has those sins in their lives that they, they found a way to justify. Well, I know, but we all have that sin. Okay? And every time we accept it, we're saying, God said this is sin, I say it's not. We're calling God a liar in everything. It really makes me think, like when I'm driving in traffic. It makes me think, I really did. Uh, the other day as I'm calling someone an idiot in traffic, I was thinking to myself, wow, that's how you glorify God in the body. By brake checking them on State Road 3, hypothetically. Brake checking them on State Road 3. Do you see how this concept can be played in anything? He could have come up to us and said, hey, listen, you've been delivered from that lifestyle, and now you're turning back to it. That could be that could be with greed, that could be with lust, that could be with envy, that could be with anything. And he's saying, why would you turn back to what you were freed from? Do you really think God's going to bless you? You had to come to him to be forgiven of that, and you're going to run back to it? Yeah, you're still going to have eternal life, but you will never leave the blessed life that God wants you to lead. This is what he was telling them. Now, a lot of people hear these verses, and they say, well, you know, this isn't talking, the, the people he was talking to weren't committing those sins, because it says they were purged of them. They were cleansed of them. That's the whole point. How, why would someone who's been cleansed from that go back to it? It kind of lends to the idea, if you've been clean from a drug addiction for five years, why would you go back to it? Why would you put yourself back in a bondage you've been delivered from? The same thing he was trying to say, except the sexual immorality. And we're going to see that uh, that problem has never gone away. And another thing I thought, and I'll get out of the way, another thing I was thinking this week as I was preparing this message, I was watching TV one day, and it's like God pointed out to me, almost everything you watch on TV has an element of sexual immorality in it. Have you noticed that? Have you ever paid attention to the cartoons your kids watch? <laughs> this sounds stupid, but I was watching a cartoon, you know, because my granddaughter, and I like the cartoon. But anyway, I was watching it, and I caught three or four references to something sexual and moral, sexually immoral I never paid attention to. It's starting to be trained to our, with our children from a young age all the way up to when they get to teenagers. They look at us like we're insane when we say that you need to, you need to honor your body that God's given you. They look at you like you're nuts. They've been programmed like that their whole life. If we don't, if we don't start doing something, if we don't start standing up to stuff like that, we're a lot like Corinth now, and we're far past them if we haven't already someday. We've got to get that under control. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. There's a lot more to cover. If you would, please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Uh, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, or you just need prayer. I'm nobody's judge. I, I want to pray for you. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'll be praying for you. Bless those people. If you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But listen, if, if you're a believer and there's something in your life that's a secret, a sin in your life that, that it's hard for you to let go of, so you hide it. I want to pray for you because listen, we can't be the instruments that God uses for His righteous purposes if we continue to embrace sin and excuse it. Now, are you going to sin? Absolutely. It's not, a, it's not a big deal that if you sin, it's a big deal when you let sin be master over you. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for your love and your grace. And we know, God, there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve heaven. It is a gift. And God, we know that you paid a huge price so that we could have that eternal life. You sent your only begotten son to die innocently on the cross to defeat death on the grave so that all those who trust in him could have eternal life. I can't understand that kind of love. The kind of love that would die for the sins of the very people that were crucified. But I'm so thankful we exist. If someone who doesn't know you would ever pull them back or move it, and let them realize that if they are willing to believe, you have promised to be. But God, for those of us who have already believed, it's so easy for us to get distracted. It's so easy for us to slip into sin that the world says is all right and start excusing us and making ourselves the kind of people you can't bless. We don't want to be that kind of people. Give us a passion for the truth. Discipline us when we start to slip. Bring us back into the fold. God, use us as the instruments you designed us to be because we want to see this world change. We just ask that you to go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory. We're so ready. Amen.